Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with El Monitor columnist, Sammy Idiz, about developments in Turkish foreign policy. Few writers are better placed to help us understand Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's strategies and ambitions in the greater Middle East, including the current role with France and other European countries over cartoons of both the Prophet Muhammad and of Erdogan himself, what Sami has described as cracks in the Russia-Turkey relationship, Turkey's objectives in Libya, Nagorno-Karabakh, and Syria, and how Erdogan considers the choice between U.S. President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden in the upcoming U.S. presidential election. My conversation with Sammy Idiz begins after this short break and a few brief opening remarks about how some of America's partners in the region, including Israel and the Gulf, may view the U.S. presidential election in their own calculations about dealing with Iran. If we are to go by the uh, uh, the pro-government media and the pro-Erdogan media in Turkey, uh, Biden has already been demonized in, demonized in Turkey. And, and ironically, belatedly, after uh, maybe six or seven months after an interview Biden gave, uh, a statement about, you know, sort of uh, uh, controlling and undermining dictators and all this, uh, and uh, he became uh, an object of, of anger. Right? And this was quite recent, in fact, about a month ago. Uh, and all the comment in the government media was generally that, you know, Biden would be a disaster for Turkey. So on the, simply on the basis of that and on top, uh, given the fact that, uh, as you pointed out, Erdogan and Trump have had some kind of a cohabitation uh, where they served each other's interests, I think it's a foregone conclusion that the Trump uh, administration is what Ankara is rooting for at the moment. That was Sammy Idiz, columnist for El Monitor, who will be joining us shortly. First, let me tell you what's on my mind. Iran made an appearance at last week's presidential debate between U.S. President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, the only mention of the Middle East in the two debates between the candidates. Now, in case you missed it, the question was about Iranian and Russian interference in the election, not the Iran nuclear deal. Biden swore that if elected, Iran and Russia would, quote, pay a price for their meddling. Trump said that both Russia and Iran want Biden to win, and then they moved on to other subjects. Now, no surprise, of course, that the Middle East and most foreign policy issues are lower priority for Americans than COVID-19, the economy, and healthcare at this late stage of the campaign. And few voters are likely to be swayed at this point by a candidate's position on the Iran nuclear deal or Israel's normalization agreements, for that matter. The Trump administration's policy in the region and toward Iran have nonetheless been impactful however you assess that impact. Now, whoever wins the election, Iran remains the most critical U.S. security challenge in the region, not only for its potential to develop a nuclear weapon because of its adversarial policies per U.S. interests and allies in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and throughout the Middle East. Now, 
Joe Biden has written in Foreign Affairs that the Trump administration has, quote, undermined and in some cases abandoned U.S. allies and partners. Now, that may be the view among foreign policy elites in the U.S. and Europe, but the charge is not so easy to make in the Middle East, and Iran is a case in point. While America's European allies were dismayed when the Trump administration withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal in May 2018, there were actually few complaints from some U.S. partners in the region, including Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, who have backed Trump's maximum pressure on Iran. Indeed, there was a sense of grievance about being left out of the Iran nuclear deal by the Obama administration back in 2015. Now, despite, of course, long-standing ties with Biden and his veteran national security team, some key U.S. partners in the region are anxious about a potential return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Both Trump and Biden have signaled readiness to negotiate a new Iran deal. Now, Trump, for his part, wants direct negotiations with Tehran on a completely new agreement, and Iran has opposed that. For Biden, assuming Iran is in compliance, as he said, re-entering the JCPOA could be as easy as just filing the papers. But Biden has also said he wants to begin talks on some revisions to the deal to make it better, which Iran is not interested in doing. Iran is also demanding an apology and compensation for losses from maximum pressure. Neither Biden nor Trump is likely to do either question in my mind is, would Biden lift all the post-2018 sanctions imposed by Trump on Iran without something in return? That could be, from the Iranian perspective, the price of readmission to the JCPOA. The mood in Iran, for that matter, uh, with respect to the United States and the Iran deal, is grim. U.S. sanctions have amplified the economic consequences of COVID-19 and low oil prices. Iran is facing a third straight year of negative economic growth in contrast to the positive economic spike the country had seen after signing the JCPOA in 2015 as a result of the lifting of sanctions. There is a new political configuration in Iran where President Hassan Rouhani, who considered the JCPOA a signature achievement, has lost ground to conservatives and hardliners who now control the parliament and have labeled the Iran deal a failure. Iran faces presidential elections next year. Rouhani won't be running, so who knows what turn Iran's politics may take. As Ryan Crocker told us in a recent podcast, if Biden wins in dealing with Iran, his first diplomatic stop would not be Tehran, but Europe, to rebuild U.S.-European consensus on an Iran deal. Trump, if he wins and pursues a new deal, would also likely do something along the same lines, reconnecting, trying to rebuild consensus with European allies. The next stop, this time around, would be the region. Neither Trump nor Biden is likely to cut a new deal without consultation with U.S. regional partners, especially Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, and especially in light of Israel's normalization agreements with the UAE, Bahrain, and now Sudan. Another diplomatic port of call would be Moscow. Russia and China are signatories to the JCPOA. 
Russia is a member of the UN Security Council. So multilateral diplomacy on Iran, or anything else for that matter, like Syria, is stillborn if the council is a forum for U.S.-Russian division rather than unity. Now, Biden has promised a tougher line with Putin if elected. The question for Biden and for Trump is whether a tougher line or some other approach can advance U.S. interests toward a new deal with Iran, given the ever heavy baggage in the U.S.-Russian relationship after the U.S. presidential election. He has been covering diplomacy and foreign policy for major Turkish newspapers for 30 years with articles in the Financial Times, the Times of London, Mediterranean Quarterly, and Foreign Policy. My conversation with Sami Yidiz begins now. Sami, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Sammy, President Erdogan is taking the fight to European countries, especially France and Germany, and he said yesterday, and I'm quoting, Islamophobia and disrespect for the Prophet Muhammad has been spreading like a cancer cell, particularly among European leaders. And Erdogan added, and I'm quoting again, we want those who try to use enmity towards Turks and Muslims as a cover to conceal their shortcomings in domestic politics, to take their dirty hands off our sacred values, unquote. Now, this is strong stuff, although, of course, we know Erdogan is a blunt speaker. But Turkey is a NATO country and at one time has aspired to membership in the European Union. Where do you see this going? And help us understand how this all fits with Erdogan's strategies, interests, and approach toward Europe. I think the the baseline here uh, is the fact that Erdogan was, is, and will remain an Islamist in outlook. And therefore, when he speaks in this tough manner, he is addressing not just uh, an audience in Turkey, but also even in France and as far afield as Pakistan and Malaysia. So he's aware of that. Secondly, as an Islamist, Uh, with overtones of Turkish nationalism, but essentially as an Islamist, he he has never really had much of a love for the West anyway. Uh, And therefore, we we have a definite clash of civilizations there. True, it was on his uh, party's uh, administration that Turkey-European Union membership talks started. Uh, But Erdogan uh, got that that particular day, and it was politically good, but it was never what lay in his heart. Uh, and after the Arab Spring, uh, and particularly after the coup attempt against him, he, he has become defensive in his uh, approach, very angry, very bitter, uh, uh, rabble-rousing, according to some people in Europe, when they look at it from that perspective. Uh, but it does really hark back to the fact that his whole outlook is ultimately that of an Islamist. You wrote recently that there are cracks starting to show in Russia-Turkey ties over differences over Libya, the Caucasus, and Syria. Now, there are always differences in Russian and Turkish interests, but they're usually handled well at the summit level, that is, between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Erdogan directly. And in fact, Putin said last week at the Valde Club conference that no matter how tough Erdogan may come across. He is, quote, flexible 
and they can usually find a common language. Now, before we get into the specific conflicts, tell us how you see this relationship between Putin and Erdogan and where you see it going. Well, to start with, uh, personality-wise, they, they uh, are kindred spirits in many ways. And, and, and therefore, there's some kind of a chemistry, you know, the tough guy uh, and determined and, uh, person who sticks to his targets, that kind of thing on both sides. Uh, but other than that, the relationship also came at an opportune moment for Erdogan in the sense that uh, his uh, relations with Europe and, and America, what we were talking about a minute ago, uh, deteriorated very rapidly, uh, and Russia provided the counterbalance in many ways, not just politically, uh, but also in terms of the military industry side, uh, enabling Erdogan to uh, say that, you know, sort of, uh, we're not dependent on Western military industry, we've got options, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and, and initially, there was also a certain amount of cooperation in Syria, to be quite honest. Uh, which did produce some minor results at the time. But uh, what was happening at the, at the top, uh, at the summit, uh, between two personalities who get along well, uh, did not and does not always uh, tally with what's happening in the field. Uh, and developments in the field were always uh, dichotomous as far as Turkey and Russia were concerned, whether this was in Syria because they're supporting opposing sides. Uh, it, it, it appeared to be the case in Libya. Uh, and then now we have it in the Caucasus. So politically, strategically speaking, uh, the two countries are on very uh, opposing sides. What is sweetening the whole thing and, and trying to keep it under check is not only a common dislike of the West that the two leaders have, uh, but the economic portfolio, which is very big uh, and not something that can just be uh, cast aside for the sake of political uh, issues. So uh, political tensions are rising and the differences will uh, emerge in such a way that the Putin-Erdogan relationship will not be as strong as before. Uh, but I think that the other economic side of things will always force the two sides to moderate. Uh, but uh, the, the honeymoon, uh, the wedding, uh, all that is over and reality has struck. And I think Turkey's dilemma now is that it probably will have to start exploring ways of trying to reinforce uh, its Western alliance with, uh, seeing as the Russian side is not really producing what it's supposed to. Let's talk a little about some of those issues that are affecting Russia-Turkey relations. And you mentioned the Caucasus. Uh, our Azerbaijan and Armenia have rekindled the conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan would not have attacked Nagorno-Karabakh without Turkey's support. What's Erdogan's endgame here? Uh, I, I think it has uh, uh, something to do with his nationalist side this time more than his Islamist side in the sense that uh, Azerbaijan is a very uh, keen secularist country where you can't play the Islamist card, but you can play the Turkish nationalist card. Uh, and by giving this strong support to Azerbaijan and knowing the general mood in Turkey, especially when it comes to the conflict that has Armenia uh, on the other side, uh, I think uh, Erdogan uh, is also eyeing the domestic gallery, which is all behind him in this support that he's giving to Azerbaijan. And, and at a time when he needs political support domestically, because uh, both economically and politically he's not doing so well, uh, this is a boon, of course. But his assertiveness, if he can uh, 
put a foot in the caucuses also and have a say there too, uh, would fit in with a kind of uh, vision he has of Turkey spreading Turkey's influence uh, beyond its borders. Uh, uh, but uh, whether he will manage to do that, this being the caucuses, not Syria or Libya, of course, is a very different question. Let's talk a little about Libya. We'll talk about Syria in just a minute. But tell us about Turkey's ambitions in Libya. That's pretty far afield. Uh, and how it may or may not connect to the emerging conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean, where on the other side is Greece, Cyprus, and even Israel, over energy rights there. I, I think the point to start there is to uh, uh, remind uh, 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 people, but also to recall for those who do not know that Turkish-Libyan relations are actually, despite the, the uh, distance that you alluded to are uh, are they have a history and, and not just uh, an ancient history Ottoman period uh, but also in modern times a very significant economic involvement Turkey's uh, uh, boom in the construction sector uh, what what really capitalized Turkish society came uh, with a lot of investments in the Arab world and a very large portion was in Libya so Turkey and Libya have had very close relations uh, but at the moment, uh, Erdogan is trying to reap a treble benefit from this, I think. Uh, number one, of course, is the contracting side that he already has the foundation from, from, from the 90s, especially in the 80s, that he can build on in the reconstruction of Libya with Turkish companies. Secondly, uh, the oil advantage, the energy advantage that he secures. And thirdly, and of lately, this uh, economic, uh, uh, joint economic zone that he declared with Libya between the Turkish shores and the Libyan shores, which really, uh, like a saber, cuts through uh, uh, the claims that, are, that Greece uh, and Cyprus and Egypt are making for energy rights in the, in the Mediterranean. So Ankara's relationship with uh, Libya is very significant. Uh, the question there, of course, is, uh, is Ankara back in the right side and will it be able to maintain the, the positive atmosphere it has with the internationally recognized government now? Uh, that's not clear because, you know, uh, developments in Libya are also taking a course that Turkey really does not have that much control over. Erdogan has again threatened to mobilize his forces into northeast Syria at a time when Turkey is redeploying its military elsewhere in Syria, withdrawing from outposts in Idlib and elsewhere. What's Erdogan's strategy here, and is the timing of Erdogan's warning to the Syrian Kurds linked in any way to the U.S. presidential election next week? Oh, well, uh, the U.S. elections, of course, aside, that's a cloud that's looming over the corner for over Ankara. But Erdogan's endgame in Libya is, was his original plan. In Syria, I beg your pardon, is his original plan. Uh, we all know what he intended. He wanted a buffer zone, you know. Uh, he wanted a, the area cleared of the YPG, which uh, Ankara associates with the outlaw PKK, uh, these Kurdish groups. Uh, and he wanted Turkish uh, contractors to go in to rebuild the area. This, this was his end, end game, but uh, it has all become... A, a, a messy situation for him now because no, none of these have been realized. Uh, and on top of which, uh, Russia, especially uh, the situation east of the uh, Euphrates with the Americans, is quite quiet at the moment. The tension is west of, uh, uh, west of the Euphrates and the Russians. 
uh, and uh, Erdogan is seeking a way to cope with the Russian agenda there, uh, which does not tally with the Turkish agenda, and he is in a difficult situation uh, where he may have to face military choices. Uh, his latest uh, uh, warning, shall we say, or threat uh, against uh, terrorists in Syria that Turkey could be uh, on their heels at any given time, really, I think, has to do with this latest bombing that uh, the Russian Air Force uh, carried out earlier this week, in which a large number of uh, uh, fighters associated to a Syrian group uh, that is working with Turkey uh, were killed. And I think this was a, a, a convoluted way of Ankara saying, I will hit the Kurds in North Syria, but uh, giving the message more than the American side uh, to the Russian side this time. So it's, it's become very confusing for Turkey in Syria and uh, uh, what the situation will be uh, uh, if uh, and when many see it as imminent, uh, Biden is elected president in America. Uh, adds even more of an uncertainty to the whole situation for Ankara. So uh, at the moment, I don't think Adon has a, a very clear strategy as to where the situation uh, in Syria can go. I think he's just trying to manage the situation as it is now. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma because if, as we've uh, described in our monitor, he really faces two fronts. I mean, in, in the Northeast, where which he invaded in October 2018, and there's the occupation forces, and you mentioned his long-term concerns about security there. And then in the Northwest, which is, which is Idlib, and what's interesting is that the warning goes to the Northeast, where the U.S. backs this Syrian democratic forces, which uh, are primarily Kurdish, and many of those Erdogan considers terrorists, but in Idlib, uh, that's where he confronts Russian-backed Syrian forces. So it's really a difficult uh, quagmire, indeed. Some people like to say that about the, the Russians. I really think it's a quagmire for Turkey. Yes, indeed. And, and uh, just to cut in there, you know, I think the uh, one thing that Ankara has done to make life even more difficult for itself in this respect is to spread, you know, sort of the situation in Syria, Caucasus and Libya through these fighters uh, that it allegedly, let's say, you know, in quotes, uh, is, is uh, carrying or allowing to go into other areas. And, and all of these uh, conflict areas are very uh, sensitive issues for global powers, for local powers and everything, and everybody in, in the neighborhood. And, and, uh, and therefore, you know, the, the connection, like, uh, for example, uh, what I've seen in the Russian press is many people commenting that the strike by the uh, Russian Air Force against this Fela Kushan group in, in, in North Syria uh, earlier this week was just a way of giving a message that you're not going to carry these uh, people to the Caucasus as mercenaries. Uh, this is how the Russians are reading the situation, you see. So as you say, it's become incredibly difficult and very conv convoluted and a quagmire perhaps for everybody, but it's definitely for Turkey. We have written and covered in the past that Putin, as recently as January of this year, has have tried and has tried and failed to get a back channel going between Damascus and Ankara. And of course, that fell apart this year, in good part, as a result of the conflict in Idlib, which where Russian-backed Syrian forces provoked uh, an escalation by attacking Turkish outposts there. Is this something Erdogan would ever consider that is 
burying the hatchet with Assad? I personally think that's a bridge too far. And I think the reason is more to do with domestic politics and, and, and the way he has demonized Assad uh, day and night uh, for the past, uh, uh, you know, the nearly decade, but more like eight years. Uh, and he, anything that he does now uh, will be considered climbing down, you know, backpedaling, and it will not look good for him politically. We have to realize that Adam is a politician who stands firm and does not like the image of stepping down from his position. And Assad, I personally think, would be a step too far for him. Uh, but uh, whether, you know, there, there were, as you know, some low-level, uh, well, perhaps not low-level, high-level intelligence contacts between the sides. Uh, possibly as developments unfold, uh, there may be ministerial contacts, maybe sort of in a third-party country or somewhere like that, you know. But uh, I don't foresee Assad and uh, Erdogan and Assad making up uh, for any pragmatic reason. And I, I, I wonder if Assad, after all this, would accept that also. Let's turn to the U.S. presidential election. We've, we've teased that in a couple of uh, your comments. Now, Erdogan and President Trump seem to have a good personal relationship. And, and, and Trump could even be described as a kind of firewall for U.S.-Turkey relations because there's been congressional initiatives for sanctions uh, over the S-400 sale, which the White House has been unwilling to impose until now. Should we assume that Erdogan would prefer that Trump be reelected? Uh, and if Trump loses to Vice President Biden, what would Erdogan's expectation be for U.S.-Turkey relations, which, which are already in a kind of bad way, despite the Erdogan-Trump relationship, uh, if Biden wins? Well, I mean, if we, if we are to go by the, uh, uh, the pro-government media and the pro-Erdogan media in Turkey, uh, Biden has already been demonized in, demonized in Turkey. And, and ironically, belatedly, after uh, maybe six or seven months after an interview Biden gave, a statement about, you know, sort of uh, uh, controlling and undermining dictators and all this. Uh, and uh, he became uh, an object of, of anger. Uh, and this was quite recent, in fact, about a month ago. Uh, and all the comment in the government, pro-government media was generally that, you know, Biden would be a disaster for Turkey. So on the even, simply on the basis of that and on top, uh, given the fact that, uh, as you pointed out, Erdogan and Trump have had some kind of a cohabitation uh, where they served each other's interests, uh, I think it's a foregone conclusion that the Trump uh, administration is what Ankara is rooting for at the moment. Sammy, thank you for a great conversation today about Turkey and for your many contributions to El Monitor. Thank you, Andrew. We'll be right back after this short break with a few brief closing remarks and takeaways from our conversation with Sammy Ittes. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, 
two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Many things to reflect on in our conversation just now with Sami it is. Let me just mention two. First, in Syria, Sami agreed with the assessment that Erdogan faces a quagmire. There's no other way to describe it. He's risking a confrontation with both Russian-backed Syrian forces in Idlib in the northwest, and he's risking increased tension in already difficult U.S.-Turkey relations if Turkey launches another major assault in the Northeast against Syrian Kurdish troops, which have been U.S. partners in the battle against Islamic State. It is also said that Vladimir Putin's attempts to reconcile Erdogan and Assad are likely to continue to fail, a bridge too far, it is said, because Erdogan is loath to back down in the eyes of his public after eight to nine years or so of calling for Assad to be removed or to step down. Second, it is said it is a, quote, foregone conclusion, given Erdogan's good personal connection and direct diplomacy with President Trump, that Ankara is rooting for Trump in the U.S. presidential election next week, and that the pro-government media in Turkey has made Joe Biden a, quote, object of anger, over remarks the former vice president made earlier this year, critical of Turkey. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Colabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week, and in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.